I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of I-94 Live at the Dial. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And tonight, Mr. Jeremy Kitchen is out trying to sell igloos to the Inuit. He is not with us, but he is missing the lovely, the talented Amanda Goldblatt, author of Hardmouth. Please give her a big round of applause. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for showing up. It's a cold night out there, too. Indeed. So it was. It was tough to get here. Um... Let's start at the very beginning because, I mean, uh, before we even get into the book, as I recall, you started writing the book because you had a family health crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was your father was diagnosed with cancer. And, of course, that is a uh, motif in this book as well. Can you talk a little bit about that being the inspiration for starting this, which, uh, again, is your first novel as well, correct? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I I went through grad school just writing stories and – Uh, people around me were working on novels and I was always like I'm not going to write a novel until there's something like big enough something that really is going to flatten me that I really want to devote time to I'm a very slow writer so I knew that I didn't want to go into something without fully believing in it or feeling like I needed to do it Um, in I think around 2011 my father was diagnosed with cancer and I uh had to do something with all the feelings I I felt as a result, just basically uh, existential fear that was, uh, you know, grafted onto the idea of of prospectively losing a parent. Uh, So I just started writing. Um, Not, you know, what's the opposite opposite of fantasy fulfillment, like trauma fulfillment. Um, but I use that to just sort of drive me forward into starting the book. I should say, luckily, um, my father recovered like so quickly that my partner sometimes forgets that he even oh, had cancer. So did you not finish before... He got better. He got better, and I was still writing. Okay. But at that point, I was so devoted to the narrator and the the story itself. Mm -mm, No. And I was still like, I still was full of all the feelings, just because I was, you know, we were all in the clear. Things still stuck around for a while. Well, I remember, I can't remember where I read it. Maybe the reader, (laughs) a quote from you that said that you can't imagine anybody writing a novel without something traumatic happening in their life. Yeah, I mean, I think whether it's uh, something dramatic, like a big dramatic, uh, like an accident or a death, or whether it's something that's just marked you in some significant, profound way over many years, um, I don't know. I, I write to think often, and uh, I write to figure out my relationship to the world and others, and so I don't... It doesn't feel like it could be a casual thing for me to undertake it. What's, I'm guessing you were surprised? You surprised yourself while you were writing? Yeah, in I, what way what, do you mean? Well, it sounds like you you don't know what you're thinking or feeling before yeah. you write it. So you're probably surprising yourself a lot through, well, 
with the feelings and the plot. You use a lot of really precise poetic language too. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm wondering, did you surprise yourself with one, the feelings that popped up and also the what you did with the plot and the main character? Yeah, I mean, the prime, my primal reaction was once I heard about the diagnosis was basically like to run, right? To avoid pain. Um, and so I understood that that had to be part of my narrator's story or her, her forward movement. Um, and I also understood it as sort of the end of one understanding of the world and the beginning of a different one, um, which felt like it was like threatening to be, to feel like an end of world scenario. And so when I first started writing the novel, it was, um, my narrator, Denny, uh, convinced herself that the uh, oncoming death of her father was also just like gonna be, gonna mean that the world itself was literally ending. Um, I was writing it, you know, in, in the, in the, I guess, teens, we can call it now. Yeah. Um, and late aughts, uh, early teens, um, people were writing about the end of the world a lot. In, yeah. yeah. I mean, we did a show. So, yeah. With, Ling Ma. Uh, yeah, yeah Ling Ma. exactly. Right, uh -huh. right. Um, and I think her uh, world, it's not, it's not a real end of the world, I feel like there's like a strange, bizarre hope to that, to severance. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I mean, there was, there was like a Station Eleven and yeah. like Laura Vandenberg's novel at the time. Well, and the Jeff Vandermeer stuff. And the Jeff Vandermeer. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. And so there was all this stuff in the water and I was like, well, I don't, this is not actually what I'm most interested in writing about. Um, what happens when I like strip that apparatus away? Um, and then you just end up with a woman on a mountain for a while. <laughs> Have you read Scribe? Oh, no, yeah. I haven't. So we we talked to her um, a couple Allison Hagee. a couple months ago, oh, yeah. and she had written a book, sort of again. It's like a funhouse mirror version of your book. Uh, no. there, it's the end of the world, kind of post whatever that would be. And she is writing letters for people who are kind of analogs of Civil War veterans. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's obviously the future, and she's a very isolated figure, and yeah. there's all this kind of magical thinking, which uh, not necessarily present in your book, yeah, but yeah. I wondered if you had come across it. You, you might be No, it sounds book. really great, though. I'll definitely take a, take a look. You should, and she was a fascinating interview, which you, by the way, can catch in our archive, because she spoke to us here on <laughs> I-94. Uh, and that archive is at i94.org. I'd actually like to back up, though, and talk a little bit about your process, because um, Mike asked a question that I always love to ask of writers. Um, which is, did you kind of think out the plot and the narrative at the start, or did everything kind of just come to you and reveal itself to you as you worked on the characters? And I, I ask for a reason because um, I'm a writer, my mother's an author, and my mother always refers to herself as a stupid author because <laughs> she gets very bored if she writes everything down and works out the plot in advance. Uh, but she says it has a, it makes it very difficult for her to actually find endings and, and get to where she's going. So I always like to talk to authors about that, particularly because I also, I believe I read in an interview that you read, you wrote most of this on an iPhone with a kind of a wireless keyboard. and Most of the first draft. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not really looking at the, the words. You were kind of keeping that distance. So yeah. if you don't mind digging down into that for a couple minutes, uh, I'd yeah. be personally very interested in that. For sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I indeed wrote 
uh, through my phone and a wireless keyboard, like sitting on the front porch of uh, our place when we lived in Ypsilanti, Michigan, um, which is where I started the book. And um, I am not, I'm not a planner. I don't, um, I regrettably know this from a cousin approaching me and asking me whether I was one or the other at a wedding uh, a handful of years ago. He was like, well, are you a planner or a pantser? Which is, internet lexicon which you've maybe heard I yeah not. um it's basically like exactly like do you plan things ahead or do you fly by the seat of your pants um oh. yes that's, that's what pantser is yes yes that's you michael you're the pantser in the family um uh but yeah i don't it's difficult for me i have a very studied almost nearly didactic relationship to structure and plot. I have to be really careful about that stuff because I am so much more interested in language, character, uh, like sort of smaller scale scenario. Um, and I'm interested in causality, but in terms of, you know, when you're working on a short story, you can rely on your se your like sort of uh, intuitive sense of causality. Um, but when you're working on something like a novel, you have to actually think about this larger structure, and I spent a lot of time thinking about larger structures. Um, so I wrote a, f I wrote, wrote a full draft, like your mom, kind of figuring things out as I went. And there's a reason it took me, you know, six years to to write this before an agent ever saw it. And it's because I was going back into the draft over and over again and figuring it out. And I had different sort of planning methods throughout. Um, for a long time, I was very fond of post-its. Mm -hmm. And I would just have a grid of post-its on my office wall. Uh, and I would move and they would have sort of like a summaries or uh, keywords of scenes and I would just move things around and I would figure it out that way and then I would figure out what needed to be filled in, what could be excised. Um, and I didn't actually find an ending until um, actually until I found more grief, which was when both my grandmothers died the same year. And then I could actually write the end. I don't think I was prepared to write the end before that because I felt like... Um, I didn't know where the narrator needed to go, and I didn't have perhaps the emotional depth to end it. Mm -hmm. um, Six years yeah. is a long time to hold on to your baby. Uh, was it hard to give it up? You know, or it, was it a relief? I was ready. I think I was ready, and I was lucky. I worked on the manuscript for about seven months, which is maybe atypically long these days with my agent, and she was an excellent first editor. Um, and then I worked with my editor at Counterpoint, and she was wonderful too, but that was a really quick, that was like a four-month process. So once, basically once I had finished working with it, working on it with my agent, um, the editor came in and just really was great. She was, Jenny Alton, was really great at just um, sh pointing out places that needed, needed uh, help or attention or... Um, Moments Wait, you, where you I actually would, had an editor that did that in I this did. day and age. I did. Yeah, here's that, the that's key. That's incredibly rare, folks. I know. Here's the key: um, new, newer editors, newer agents um, have time and passion and bandwidth to do that, and yeah. it's ex and it's so it feels so good as a writer to be to have your work paid attention to that way. I I got really lucky. Yeah, I mean, when I did a a, a book, I mean, I basically got a. a line edit, copy edit, pass. Yeah. I don't even think they read the book before they published it. So, <laughs> you know. I'm still thinking about pantsing. 
Is, is pants? Is that British slang? Pan, pants is British slang. Yeah, but of course my wife's nickname is Pants too. <laughs> Shanna Pants. Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah, where did that come from? It's just what she was called as a kid, Shanna Pants. Probably oh. because she wore pants all the time. But pants is kind of uh, in British slang. But you're the British underwear? one. Yeah. Well, I, no. In, in England? In England, it means you're kind of stupid. Like, this is pants. Like, oh. you, you've messed up. Yeah. That's, yeah okay. So when, when we were, my, when my wife and I were in Britain all the time, because I'm from Britain, we, uh, they, my colleagues who were journalists always marveled at that nickname and thought it was very amusing. Well, and it all goes along with your mom's theory of being a dumb writer, right? Well, she's a pantser. Uh, yeah. She's a pantser. <laughs> she is a pantser. Yeah, she is a pantser. So, uh, no, I think that's interesting. And uh, the other question I kind of wanted to ask, again, still kind of on the subject of process, the book to me felt as if it was written almost in two sections mm -hmm. at two different times. Is that a fair? I mean, that was just the way it came off to me. Yeah. Was that a fair it assessment? It is split in sections. Well, but they, they felt the, the first section felt quite different than the second section, and and candidly, I enjoyed the second section more than I did the first section mm -hmm. as a reader. Yeah. Uh, the first section, uh, and I mean, I, I think this was intentional, seemed to be kind of purposely distancing the reader because mm -hmm. your narrator is distancing herself from the world around her. Yeah. Whereas the second section uh, struck me as much more welcoming because the. I, I mean, I hope this is intentional. I mm -hmm. felt it was because your narrator felt more welcome in that world at that time. And so what are you, are you referring to the sections as like the suburbs and the mountains? Yeah, basically. Sort of like home in a way. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I didn't know if you'd written those at different times or over different periods of time. And as a result, you know, maybe you had a different take on how you wanted to do them or whether, you know, this was just my interpretation of it that I'm completely pulling out of my pants. No, I mean, uh, honestly, pants. it was calibrated. Okay. Like, uh, it was strategic. Uh, you have a retrospective narrator, and um, obviously she is going to be thinking about different parts of her life in different ways. Right. And she's going to be able to talk about them in different ways. Right. And so it made sense to me that you would have a more distanced, almost emotionally abstracted narrator um, when talking about something that you know, talking about her father, for instance, right. and sort of sites of her childhood. Um, and when she's actually having to, say, deal with the terms of her body mm -hmm. on the mountain, and right. there's action uh, in a more immediate way, it made sense that she's sort of like closer and it breaks open in that way, in that manner. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Both sections are, are introduced with epigraphs, and I, I wanted you to talk about those a little bit. Yeah. The, the first one is a Abbott and Costello routine. Yeah, yeah. And the second one is um, a fragment from an Anne Carson poem. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to see if you could tell us why you picked those. And they're two different, totally different tones. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Abbott and Costello epigraph is um, a routine that I have had memorized since I was very, very small. Um, I couldn't sleep as a kid, and at a certain point, my parents were like, we're not reading to you anymore. <laughs> um, and they found, it used to be, if you went to, you know, I, I'm thinking about Crown Books, was, which was a chain bookstore that used to exist. Is that in when, Washington? I mean, I think it might have been a D.C. area okay. chain, but I don't actually know. Um, and they had, um, they, at the counter, they would have classic radio show tapes available. 
And so, oh, yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. You get the shadow and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, I got yeah. the North, the Bickersons, yeah, yeah. all of those. That was yeah. great stuff, folks. You missed out. <laughs> um, so I listened to usually the comedy. I would listen to to Gunsmoke and Nanook of the North and a couple others on uh, Sundays. There was broadcast on the local NPR affiliate on Sunday evenings with Ed Walker, um, who was a great a great host uh, talking about radio. But uh, normally I would listen to people like Abbott and Costello and their, their comedy to fall asleep. And so their language really got into my writerly DNA um, and also just capacity for dumb wordplay um, and confusion and uh, stemming from word usage and things like that. And that's something that I, I think I play around with a lot in the book. Um, and so I was thinking about this idea of the mistaking of like what fa father versus fodder and uh, the sort of... Uh, accidental gravitas of thinking about having to carry around your father, like well, hanging from your nose, right? That's what I liked about it. I was, yeah. I was expecting slapstick. Yeah. I, I didn't know anything about the book before yeah, I yeah. started. I didn't read any reviews or anything. So that's the first thing I read. And yeah. then you dive into the story and it's not slapstick. No. And I'd like to think there's some humor, but there's like, for sure, this is a woman telling a story and she's been dragging her her father sort of psychically around. Um, and so that's that that felt like an obvious thing for me. It felt very primal, um, like a primal choice. Whereas the um, Anne Carson was really just I read um, I read that work when I was um, working on the novel and the idea of like time folded like a mountain and some of the other imagery in there felt really appropriate to um, the different ways, like a, a mountain literally, but also a mountain figuratively, what it meant in Denny's life. So the epigraph is, it's from Ann Carson, Time Passes Time, which is a passage from a larger work called Red Dock. And the epigraph is short. It says, uh, time is perseverance, time is hunger, time in a natural way, time when you were six, the day a mountain. Mountain time. That, that's the whole epigraph. And I, I hadn't read Anne Carson yeah. before. She's a Canadian poet, yeah? And, she, and a classicist. Yeah. Okay. It's super interesting. Yeah. So that, that work was a sequel to something called uh, The Autobiography of Red. Yeah, correct. Which was based on uh, one of the trials of Hercules yeah, or Heracles. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. It was really intriguing, but I never got a chance to, write, to, to read much by her. Can you talk about her? Influence on her and her work? Sure. Her, her um, influence on you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, she's just, first of all, a brilliant writer, a brilliant mind. Um, she actually just did a series of lectures at University of Chicago oh. um, just a few weeks ago. Um, one, a lecture on corners, a lecture on chairs, and a lecture on stillness. Um, and I went to the lecture on stillness. Um, and basically, she uses like the classics, um, ancient texts, um, and then sort of experience of contemporary life to talk about different things, about what it's like to be a, a person, um, and the way that language mediates that. 
I, don't, I think that's an okay characterization yeah. of her project. She's like yeah. a Canadian Mary Beard. If you know who Mary Beard is, who did, uh, was it SPQR, the big work on the Romans? Yeah. Uh, Mary Beard is the preeminent. Oh, I'm thinking of Mary Roach. No, it's not Mary Roach. <laughs> <Yeah. coughs> no, Mary Beard is the preeminent British classicist who uh, is really a historian, but is a populist historian. She's been yeah. on the BBC and walks around and says funny things and does stuff. But Anne Carson is more of a... Um, what we used to call an English or humanities professor mm -hmm. who focuses really on the ancient texts and the translations of the texts yeah. and the way meanings have shifted when things are translated. Because some of those works, remember, were translated into Greek or then into Greek and out of that into you know, Italian, Latin, and then into English by Richard Burton. So there's so much movement and slippage, and that is one of the things that Carson focuses on. Absolutely. And, of course, she's a poet. You know, um, and I would say that her work in the classics is um, certainly well respected, a prominent part of her project. But um, she is absolutely a poet. I would say, for first and foremost, or the two are informed. The two parts of her project are informed by one another. Um, I I wouldn't say that I'm anchored in the classics particularly, um, but I am uh, totally charmed and hypnotized by her relationship with language. And part of that comes from her uh, being a translator and a scholar. Was that, was that tough during the editing process, having your language twisted, stricken? Mushed around. Mushed around. <laughs> so my agent and my editor were both really good at knowing what the voice of the narrator was and staying true to that. Um, copy editing was more of a difficulty, I would say, right? Because Is that somebody different? Yeah. Oh, okay. Gener generally, they have, um, the, there might be someone in-house or a freelancer. You're just bragging in. that you had three editors on one contemporary <laughs> fiction book. You know, folks, Dimitri over there looks like he's going to fall off his chair. Stunned. <laughs> I, I know I am. Um, uh, oh. Were they all named Dimitri? No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah, I mean, I would say that... Uh, so I was relentless in my own uh, editing of my book, re-editing, editing and re-editing of my book and of the language specifically. And so for the most part, that didn't get touched. When the copy editor came in, I just had to stet, so to just say leave it alone, a lot of what... Um, they were asking Do you get to final, change. Final call. Yeah, generally yes. Okay. Um, unless something is really messed up, uh, and they think there's no way that anyone's going to understand what what's going on, um, they generally let you do what you want to do. Keep it a particular way. I, uh, this might be tedious, but yeah. this whole process yeah, is fascinating please. to me because I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Do you only get so many chances, like? Yeah, they you put your manuscript off. on a dartboard, Mike. And, and if they, if they no, only I mean, hit it, you time know. is limited. They got budget, so like, for sure. Do you only get to send it over once and have them send it back over, and you get to do your thing, and then that's it? Yeah, there's only so many pa what's called passes, okay. and so I knew that you know they get it. There's a certain time the manuscript has to be delivered. And that's once your editor has looked at it. And then after that, the copy editor will look at it and you can have your responses and then all of your changes get integrated into the manuscript. And then it gets sent over to proofreading. Um, and then you usually have a final pass from there, 
generally from a final pass, people have like one or two changes. I had like 54. <laughs> um, because things had to change. Um, and luckily... grammatical stuff? Or? No. It, well, it was like I wanted... The language could be better. So I mm. wanted to change it. Did you drive them crazy? To be better. Uh, you know, I'm lucky in that the managing editor at Catapult Counterpoint is a writer herself. And I think she was okay with that. Was, uh, Kendall? Is that her name? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. We had a woman no, we had show, somebody uh, from Cat Yeah, we had somebody yeah, yeah. Catapult for a while back. Yeah. Um, we're, we're actually coming for a break, but one thing I did want to ask you, because it was a, a question kind of nagging in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Did you an, initially go into this book intending your narrator to be an unreliable narrator? It's a concept I thought about a okay. lot. Um, I think a lot about the slipperiness between unreliable and subjective. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and there's two different things. Right. Yeah. And I don't think ultimately she's I don't I don't don't intend her to be an unreliable narrator. I think mm. certainly she could be read that way. I just think she is extraordinarily subjective and that her language e- puts a further scrim in front of her accounts. Um, so yeah. that you're getting a really mediated a- account of what's going on. Yeah, I, I can see that. I guess I read some of it, especially in the first section, as, you know, and the difference for people that may be listening and don't know what we're talking about, an unreliable narrator is somebody who tells you something and you assume it to be true in the context of the book, but it turns out not to be true, uh, but not necessarily because the narrator doesn't know that it's not true. Whereas your narrator, um, as you said, is actively mediating the way she is telling the story to whoever she is telling the story to, which is not the same thing as telling somebody something false and not knowing that it's false. Right. She also has an imaginary friend. Which, well, I want to get into that in the um, second second half of the, <laughs> the, the podcast because that's a totally different thing. But um, no, I mean, Jean's, Jean, who is the, unreli- is the imaginary friend, uh, did make me wonder whether originally she was supposed to have more of... Jean's characteristics about her and the way she discussed things and, and confronted things. I mean, no. I think Jean, Jean was part of the book basically from, I would say, ha- halfway through. By the time she got on the mountain, when the first draft, okay. I, he showed up. And then later I sewed him in earlier. Okay. Um, but absolutely, he's a, a counterpoint or yeah. uh, a ballast in some ways or is allowed to be more unruly than mm-hmm. she allows herself to be. Um, but yeah, yeah. Did you have an imaginary friend? No, sadly, no. I never Did had you? one either. Did no. Did you? Did I, I bet you had a lot. Uh, yeah. I, I, that's a good question. I had like, uh, well, I have a Snoopy that I was, you know, had as a child and I still have it actually as an adult. And I, you know, read with, you know, uh, a dog, but I mean, you know, I grew up as pretty much an only child, so, yeah. um, you know, most of my family also, uh, my mom is the youngest in, in a family that was actually much older, like 30 or 40 years older than mm-hmm. her, so almost all the family that I grew up with in Britain were, were World War II veterans, you know what I mean, and, and they were quite a bit older than, you know, an eight-year-old, you know, half-yank kid running around wanting to <laughs> say, hi, Snoopy, you know, and all this, so, uh, yeah, I think so, probably. <laughs> I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question, Snoopy. Mike. Got um, it. So yeah. what I'll say is that I was mostly raised as an only child. I have a half-brother who's eight years older than me and is British, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I anthropomorphized things or personified things that were not, you know, like 
uh, stuffed animals, mm-hmm. etc. all yeah. the time. I had terrible I did not nightmares have... about the pink panther. Oh. You did? Like a actual... Stuffed one, yeah. yeah. Like, do, like, would... like being violent or... No, just like... Creeping up while I was sleeping and staring over me. I mean, to be fair, that's did in you character have a pink panther? <laughs> yeah, I mean the pink yeah. panther. Yeah, yeah. A lady that worked with my dad got me a big stuffed pink panther. Oh, and we had to toss it because I, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> you, you know, the pink panther also represented the diamond. You know, it was the pink panther was the diamond they stole, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even remember the story. We'll talk about it after okay. the show. It's, it's all good. Inspector Clouseau is involved. Okay. Hey, on that note, we do have to take a break to remind folks uh, that there are people that help pay for this station, and we're very grateful to them. Please give a big hand to Amanda Goldblatt. We're here with her at the dial. We'll be right back. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin Radio. Hey, welcome back, everyone, once again to another edition of I-94 Live at the Dial. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined tonight by Mr. Michael Sack. Yellow. Mr. Jeremy Kitchen is under the weather, which is fine. He subbed in for me the other night that I was under the weather. You were way under. I was way under the weather. We won't even get into that. We are joined today by the author. I'm holding her novel up right now. You can't see this because this is radio, not television. What a shame. Hard Mouth by Amanda Goldblatt. Please give her a big round of applause. So while Amanda is sitting between us, wondering what she's gotten herself into, talk a little bit about a character that we mentioned. Um, you know, let me back up for a second. You know, we actually started out with a whole bunch of stuff about how you wrote the book. We actually haven't talked at all about the arc of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, a potted, maybe a potted reading of the book is kind of a, your, your narrator um, discovers her father has cancer and is not going to have treatment for it. And in short order, she loses her job, goes on a drunken rampage, um, and then ends up on a mountain. That's the kind of arc of this story. One of the key figures in this story is a character named Gene, who pops up, what, maybe 20, 25 pages? pages Yeah. And uh, initially kind of comes out of nowhere. It's in her apartment. Um, I kind of visualized him as a kind of a St. Louis WVON cowboy kind of guy, maybe doing a children's show or something. Um, and, and he is kind of, um, as you said, in the kind of the, the first half of the show, a counterpoint, a ballast to her, but he's also kind of a, a rogue character that's yeah. providing observations that your narrator probably feels she'd be better off without in a lot of ways. Can you talk a little bit about what this character's doing in this book? Because it's otherwise a fairly realistic book in a lot of yeah. ways. And this is uh, not a realistic character at all. Yeah, I was requested to think about getting rid of him. Okay. Um, and I never entertained actually doing that because okay. I think he's he's really important um, to the book, to Denny, my narrator, in a lot of different ways um, for the reasons you mentioned. Um, I think he's able to make observations and also uh, reflect her emotional inner life in ways that she won't cop to. Essentially, was and, he there in the start? Um, like pretty, he was in. He showed up in the first draft. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who wanted you to get rid of him? Um, my agent. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and 
she liked Gene, but she was just like, let's pull him back a little. Let's because it is the weird. I think from a sales perspective, mm-hmm. it's the we it's the weird thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is a mostly even though it's a highly subjective story, it's a pretty realist story, mm-hmm. and um, including him, I think makes it less palatable for mm-hmm. some people. Um, but ultimately, I think everyone, including her, was happy that he stayed in. Um, because he, he does add something to the book. Otherwise, you just have something which I don't think I was ultimately prepared to or interested in writing about, which is just a person alone on a mountain. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are lots of books that are capably written about people alone in natural spaces and otherwise. Um, but that's not precisely what I was interested in with this project. Um, were you saying, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering why the mountain. There are a why lot of mountain? ways that people escape. I think probably the one eh, maybe most written about, but the, definitely the one I'm most familiar with in real life is drugs and alcohol, for yeah, sure. For sure. Um, I was wondering if you cycled through different ideas about how to portray that. I was always interested in the idea of remo- like physical removal. And I was interested in a character who was not prepared for the wilderness, seeking out the wilderness. She should listen to our uh, prepper show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and she does, I think she, she does look at some uh, online forums for preppers to figure out some things. Um, but she doesn't seem to know how to light a fire. Call that a bug She's out not great plan. at it, no. Yeah, it's str- You know, I grew up in the country, and that's true. Str- no. so, some of the things that happened in the book struck, there were some wincing moments from this country kid. Yeah. You know, uh, like. She's not a country kid. No, she's not. Um, and she's made some bad, bad mistakes. Shooting the cat uh, was something yeah. that, um, that struck me as, uh, as uh, harsh. To be fair, she didn't know she was shooting the cat. To, um, yeah, you know, but when you're, you know, when you've got a weapon, you, you might, you know. why would there be a cat in the mountains? Well, there's wildlife everywhere. You yes, know? absolutely. Yeah. And she was not prepared for that. She didn't know. Right. And and I, you're right that I was able to use that for drama, for turns, for action, um, for you know irony, um, so that I know more. I know more than her about the, about wilderness life. Right. Um, not a time. I'm not. I'm not a prepper, but I. I have spent some time in the wilderness. Mm. Um, so I think. I she she never even gone camping. Is, is no, the, is the take no, no, that no. I had on your narrative. She had never. She had never essentially left the suburbs except for. But that was the first idea you knew. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the idea, when uh, you grow up in the suburbs, um, there's this idea. It's like the city, which is a romantic idea in some ways, but like a very peopled thing, right? You're going and you're, you know, you're going to have to deal with others and, um, what it means to be, uh, in a city and the interconnected lives there. And then if you have the other model, which is the wilderness. And so thinking about, um, which is unpeopled, right? Hopefully or mostly, or, dramatically less peopled. Um, and I think that she's, I mean, she's antisocial. She doesn't want to be around people. And so it makes sense that that's what she would go after to me. How did you pick her job? She um, had a weird job. Yeah, totally. So she's a, um, she's a lab tech at uh, NIH style uh, science institution. And um, that is specifically because 
uh, when I was in, I think just after high school, like the summer after high school, uh, I was hanging out with a friend who had that job. Um, and it was before September 11th. So security was pretty loose still. And she was like, Oh, we were going to go see, I think like the Royal Tenenbaums or something. Great movie. Uh, yeah. Excellent movie. Um, and she was like, wait, I got to go feed the flies first. Yeah. Um, and, but like, come with me. And so I got to be, I think it was pretty late at night. It was like nine or 10 and I got to go walk the halls of NIH while she did this. Um, and that image always stuck with me. And I realized, you know, for someone who lived in the DC area, who, you know, to have a, a, a good job, but not a great job, like a, a solid job, but not something that was really career focused. She doesn't have a science degree. Yeah, ambition oriented. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the imagery around the flies and, and the, you know, that building. So I, I always talk about the books we're reading at work. Yeah. And my boss, my boss's sister trumped the weirdness of that job. I guess it's not that weird, but yeah. her sister uh, artificially inseminated shrimp. Oh. On a shrimp farm. Yeah. yeah. Bizarre. That's all. And of course you work at the ice factory. Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah, so that's a, that's also that. a strange job as well. <laughs> I do like the fact that you drive around the ice cube shaped truck. I'm sorry, that's that's amazing. It's it's a van. It's shaped like a box, like all the other vans. Like ice <laughs> Mike never gets this joke. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you, did you grow up in the DC area? Yeah, I did. I okay. grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. Oh, okay. Yeah. Red Line. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. For a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that area fairly well as well. I was in Baltimore for a while, so. Oh, yeah. Um, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, the job that she has is, in a sense, as dead end as she sees her life. You right. know what I mean? Um, I, I don't think I'd actually really dug down and thought of that, but it, it's interesting because that area of the country, too, is about as suburban as suburban can get. Mm -hmm. And it's a very weird area if, if people aren't familiar with it, like that whole governmental industrial complex that is dc and then everything around yeah, it down that, to arlington and up yeah to that services it is is very it's unlike a lot of other places in america i, I don't know i mean I, I don't even think you can compare it to like the exurbs here in, in chicago with a you yeah. know a schaumburg or a, a joliet or anything like that yeah. um did that kind of did growing up in that kind of area make you want to write about that kind of ennui and that kind of lifestyle? I knew you were going to say ennui. Yeah, because that's I mean, just what goes it's along what it with. Is. Yeah, 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 yeah I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, for a long time, no. Yeah. I really resisted it for okay. a very long time. Um, so, yeah. Jeremy's listening. I know he's going to want to know. That means boredom. <laughs> you will, yes. Um, I, you know, my, my folks are not part of, um, they're not part of the government, they're not, you know, they don't work for a think tank. They're not lobbyists. They don't, they have nothing to do with them. My dad's a CPA who works out of the basement of their house. Um, my mom until recently was a community college instructor and she's a visual artist. Um, so there's not, I never had direct, a direct connection to sort of what the industry of the area yeah. was. Um, and there's a lot of people, right, who aren't connected in that oh, yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And like anywhere, right? And, um, you know, just people having their lives that could 
could theoretically be placed anywhere. Um, and I grew up with a really keen sense of the suburbs being static. Mm-hmm. And they're not static. But when I was growing up, it felt like something I wanted to escape like as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't want to write about it. I didn't think it was cool. Like I didn't, I, and, I, and I think in my earlier years as a writer, I wanted to write cool things, like mm-hmm. things that felt exciting in new ways. Um, and the suburbs did not feel cool or interesting to me well, in that Also way. the thing about the DC suburbs is yeah. super easy to just hop on a train and, and go down to DC and hang yeah. out where there was a lot of, a sp- lot of stuff. 90s? Yeah. You were yeah, the yeah. Black Cat. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 930 Club. 930 yeah. Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So did you go down, hang out a lot in DC? Yeah, I mean, um, from I was I was a kid who start like I started with stadium shows and like sort of mid venue shows, and then graduated pretty quickly to I unfortunately was not around in the heyday of Fugazi. I was I'm a little young for that, but um, I would grow up sort of uh, going to punk shows um, around. There was a place called uh, Kaffa House that was mostly usually reggae. Um, but uh, had punk nights. And so we would go down there, and that was around U Street where 930 Club and uh, Black Hat are. And then I would also go to Black Hat and then occasionally 930 for a bigger show. Um, and I, so I spent a lot of time that before then, before I was sort of old enough to be doing that, I would just go to museums by myself um, when, once I was sort of allowed that got granted yeah, they're permission because they? they're all free, yeah. which makes, you know, the art Institute feel really expensive. Yeah. Um, but not that I, not that I don't think that, you know, our cultural institutions should be, um, supported, but oh, I think it should be free. Yeah. I think it should be free. I mean, sure. So, yeah, let's that be, would be come nice. on, let's yeah. be real here. Um, <laughs> but it did spoil me, but yeah, so I spent, I did spend a lot of time, having those sort of field trips out of suburbia. But then we did spend a lot of time, my friends and I, just like driving around like every other kid in every other suburbia, you know, and like finding weird house parties in basements where like the parents were never around or, you know, um, hanging out at the mall um, in perhaps a less like 90210 way and more and just like you know sitting in front of them all just doing nothing i don't i don't have i don't think i know charmed well enough for that i apologize so so now as an adult are you are you still more drawn to write about city life um i think now i am but i felt like i had to you know every i think often a fiction writer's first novel, you know, you are in some way coming to terms with your upbringing, right? It's like everything, it feels very, that feels very true to me, um, or stories or did, whatever. Did your dad read it? The- oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very sensitive, so um, he was like, I lo- and I'm lucky, my parents are both super supportive, and so he was like, I love it, it's the best book I've ever read. But then my mom was like, you know, he's a little, he's like, he has some feelings about it, but he's not going to, he probably won't talk to you about it. So you, you, you still don't know. Well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but in the way that, you know, sometimes you talk to your dad about things. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes. As opposed to two radio hosts. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so, you know, he, I, I think he, he was, he was okay with it. I think he was honored by it because it is, I mean, it's, it certainly was inspired by 
by yeah. my love for him. So um, I think he understood that and valued it, which I feel lucky about. But yeah, it, when I got older, I just realized I had to write about the suburbs because that was the text that I had within me. Um, and but, to not use it made, you know, no sense. Were they big readers, your, your parents? Um, yeah, they, they're sort of like, uh, my mom always read sort of the bigger literary fiction. Um, definitely like all the Oprah books. Um, and then, you know, Wait, just different books things. Oh, you mean the books Oprah picked? The Oprah book club. Oh, I yeah, was like, yeah. how many books did Oprah write? I mean, the Oprah's have seen her as a hero. She probably has a lot, right? There's that whole series of her with the, the show and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm she was right down happy. the street. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. She's going to show. Mm-hmm. going to be right here. Um, and my dad read like a lot of history. We actually have a nice tradition now. My dad and I, I will get him. Um, he likes to read e-books. So I will get him uh, e-books of books that I've read the previous year. I'll, I'll do it for his birthday and then also for Hanukkah. And he'll get like five books that I've read. So then we can like oh, talk about cool. it yeah. a little bit. Nice. Yeah, which is a sweet thing. I was like asking that because I didn't come from a reading family. Yeah, yeah. My parents were not like, I think, you know, obviously, I'm sure your mom was a voracious reader. Yeah, I yeah. come from a big, yeah, almost yeah. everybody in my family on at least the American side were either professors or, or writers yeah. or journalists. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the other ones were um, you didn't soldiers. Stand a chance. <laughs> I didn't stand a chance. No, I got sucked in at an early age. So. But that being said, like I, w- they were always up for bringing me to the library. They were always up for taking me to a bookstore. You know, and oh yeah, DC's got cool bookstores yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. I Politics worked at afterwards. Pros. Oh yeah, and yeah, afterwards is great. Yeah. Um, it was fun. I got to do an event at Politics and Prose, and that was oh, nice. it. Was sweet to be able to to return there. Oh, on the on your tour. Yeah, on my cool. on the tour last fall. Yeah, very cool. Um, you're teaching now, right? Correct. And you're teaching writing English. What are you doing? It's at Northeastern, right? Which yeah, is Northeastern not Nor- Illinois. Which is better than Northwestern, obviously. <laughs> so what what are you doing there? Um, I teach creative writing. Okay. I'm part of the creative writing minor there, um, which is like a 16 credit program that students can take from any major. Um, so they usually take, you know, they'll take an intro to creative writing class. Um, they'll take a couple workshops, a couple electives, and then this other class that's required called Elements of Style for Creative Writers, um, which is sort of my pet project. Okay. Um, and that deals with thinking about the conventions of grammar and punctuation, things like that. Is it based on the E.B. White book? or is So it- it's... N- it's uh, sort of going moving beyond it, um, but it's I didn't name the course. I inherited the name of the course, gotcha. but uh, we do we talk about a lot of the things that uh, Strunk and White deal with, but in different ways, um, and basically locating different conventions mm-hmm. to figure out subversions of same. So like finding creative possibilities yeah. in in uh, you know alternative syntaxes and and things like that. We've been talking a lot. Uh, actually, this week, some, I'm teaching it this semester, we have been talking about uh, John Edgar Wideman and um, John Keane, who write very long sentences mm-hmm. um, and thinking about what they do with commas. Lucy Holman. Novelist? Yeah, I, I really would like to. Are they novelists? Yeah, uh, and short story, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do, is there a reading list for, for most creative writing courses, or do, you, do they just write? I do, I always assign published texts. Um, Normally, I do single texts, um, like PDFs of single texts. I try not to assign course 
texts just because um, it's very expensive. It gets really expensive to buy all those books. And as much as I want to encourage people to buy books, I also don't, I want to keep it inclusive. Yeah. So generally I'm scanning like single stories or essays or whatever. Gotcha. Yeah. Did you, I mean, you had written short stories before this novel, obviously. Mm -hmm. did, did you want to work in teaching? Is that something you wanted to do, or is this something I've been teaching the whole time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've been teaching since grad school, okay. so since 2008. Um, That's quite, a long time. Quite a long time, yeah. 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 A dozen um, years, yeah. And so, yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you say it like that. That's true, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Northeastern all the time? No, okay. I was at, I've been at a lot of different places. I was at WashU in St. Louis, which is where I went to grad school. Um, and then I also have taught on the way at University of Michigan and um, uh, Eastern Michigan University. They had a really big uh, pro uh, program at Wash St. Louis, didn't they, that was started by William Gass? Some big what was it called? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The, a writer's center or something like that? Yeah, I don't... He was actually in the, I believe, philosophy department. Oh, okay. Um, but he's, he, he was around when I was there, and oh, he would cool. every once in a while show up to an event, and I have always loved his work, so... Um, I would I would get really excited and really nervous once I had to introduce uh, Ricky Ducournay um, oh. and their old friends. Dope, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, he was sitting right in front of me, and I was like, I don't I don't want my language to be in your air. That seems inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> is is it pretty cutthroat the academic? Uh, I've been life? I've been an adjunct the whole time, so no. Like as an what, adjunct, what is it? What is so that means basically I have uh, short-term contracts. Yeah, it's uh, non-tenure track. Yeah, non-tenure track. Yeah. Um, or, Exploitative labor, as those of us in the union world would like to call it. Yeah, certainly. I'm. I yeah. mean, absolutely. Um, but it's you know it's a hustle, and yes, like the academic market is. I wouldn't call it necessarily cutthroat, but it is really tight, and so it's difficult. It's difficult to get a, a full-time job. There's so many more um, people graduating from MFAs and creative writing PhDs nowadays that like the candidates are endless. Is being tenured or being an adjunct more conducive to writing? To being um, able to write your own theoretically, stuff? Theoretically, being tenured is because once you've been through the tenure process, which involves like hitting certain marks, both within teaching and in your creative activities, which is writing and publishing. Yeah. Um, then you, you know, you get things like sabbatical, you get things like maybe you teach less um, per semester. Do you get paid on sabbatical? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's sweet. Yeah. And so, um, whereas, you know, it's just in some ways being an adjunct is just like having an hourly job. It's you show up and you get paid when you're there and you don't get paid when you're not. Um, but I've been really lucky. I think it's atypical for adjuncts to be able to consistently teach creative writing. But because I've been part of the uh, creation of the minor there, um, we have like a pretty strong community. And so I've been able to like develop my own courses and you know teach fiction workshops um, every year and uh, teach other things. I'm teaching a literary publishing class this semester. I taught uh, editing class last spring or last fall. Um, and I sort of get to pick and choose what I do within very specific reason, like knowing that I will never be full time and knowing that I will probably never be permanent at never. Northeastern. I don't think so. But I love the students. I love my colleagues. I love what I'm teaching. So 
you know, under capitalism, we make compromises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we only have a couple minutes left before the end of the show. This is kind of flown by. What's what's next? I mean, this took you six years. Yeah. What are you working on now to come out after this? Or are you working on something now? Uh, yes, I am. Um, I'm working on a, uh, a project called Lots. Um, pieces of it have been published, and I am... I'm, fi I'm finding its form currently. Um, I certainly took a break with, around the publication of this book. Mm -hmm. I, I am coming back to writing, and it's going to, I think, take a while. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're laboring alone in your office uh, and no one's expecting anything from you, it's a lot easier to get things done in a lot of ways. Can you say um, where the pieces have been published? Yeah, so one was published uh, in Noon, which is a New York-based uh, journal run by Diane Williams. Okay. Um, but so I'm working on that. It's about it's about gentrification and displacement in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about lap swimming. Uh, it's about um, I'm going to continue to work with the idea of a performative narrator, um, a narrator who's consciously uh, narrating her life, um, because I'm I'm invested in the idea of using language both as like medium and subject. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, lately I've been thinking about kind of as a noir, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that it will ultimately find its form there. Um, but it's, I'm, I'm allowing myself to be patient about things because I think that's important. Um, it's, uh, I don't think that this one is gonna take me six years, knock on wood, uh, but Thank you. Um, does it count if someone else does it for yes. you? Yes, okay, it does. Awesome. Good. Good to know for my life. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm not forcing myself, but I am really counting the days in some respects for May when I can really just focus on it once the semester is over. Yeah. Real quick, because we only got like literally a minute left. Was there anything about the reception of this book that you got on your tour or anything that surprised you? Uh, it seems to come out to, you know, some acclaim. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I maybe expected more negativity, although I purposely do not read, like, my Goodreads reviews or my Amazon reviews. Yeah, never um, reads things on the website. Yeah, no, I try not to. Um, I, st I started early, and then I was like, this is a terrible idea. Uh, but, no, it's been, I mean, it's been mostly illuminating in that, like, actually strangers are reading it mm -hmm. that's a that's the biggest deal that strangers are reading it and that seems wild to me strangers reading it in public no oh. my partner has but i have not um and he did not take a picture which i think is rude well on that note listen we've been joined tonight by amanda goldblatt she's the author of hard mouth it's out now from counterpoint i-94 will return in fact since this episode is going to tape after the next episode you'll have heard us speak to steph cha before oh, you because yeah. steph cha is this sunday so listen to the live live audience listen this sunday and then you'll hear amanda on the radio next sunday Thank you so much for doing this. Please thank give her a big hand. Thank you, right? Amanda. And thank you for coming out. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you here next month. Thank, thank you, is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Amanda Goldblatt, author of Hard Mouth, out now from Counterpoint. 
This episode was taped in front of a live audience at The Dial on January 16th and originally aired on January 26, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.